0: So last Sunday we looked at uh, introducing a sermon series looking at one aspect of Christian love because our Master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, gave us a command, a new commandment to love one another. In fact, he said that by this all men will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. And then when asked other, elsewhere in the Gospels, Hey, Jesus, what are the, what, what's the greatest commandment? If you were to summarize the entire Old Testament, what's the greatest commandment? And he says the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love God. And then he said, but a second is equal to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are summarized in these two commandments. Love God, love people. And so if our Lord commands us to love one another, If he tells us that this will be the way that the world knows that we are followers of Jesus is by our love for one another. If he summarizes all that had happened prior to his arrival on earth by saying love God and love people, then I think it's pretty important we dig into this topic of what does it look like to love one another. And we looked last week at at some of those different Greek words that are used to describe love, a little more robust flavor to the word love than what we have in English. We heard people, you know, making Portina try to try to translate those Greek words into sign language. I won't pick on you again this week. But we've got words that are, are related to the way that love exists within a family, that affection that is a natural bond between a mother and a child, or between a, a child and father. You see that in a, in a picture of a bunch of puppies snuggling together, huddled together with that mother uh, dog and, and receiving warmth and nourishment there in that place. That's affection. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. We've, we also know about the kind of love that the city of Philadelphia has in its name, that phileo love, which is a brotherly love. That's a friendship sort of love when two people are standing together looking at the same truth and saying, you believe the same way that I do? And that needs to exist within the body of Christ as we look at the kingdom of God, as we hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we stand together and we look at our King and our Lord and Savior, and there's a bond and there's a unity that exists despite whatever background we come from, whatever worldview that we have, And we're going to celebrate that sort of love today as we take the Lord's Supper together, remembering what he did, looking forward to his return, and doing this together in that sort of friendship love. There's another kind of love that in its pure form is created to bond a husband and wife together, that eros love, which is a passionate living for the other and loving one another in that way. And then finally, there's agape love, which is that other-centered love that gives and serves and results in not uh, me looking out for my own interests, but looking for your interests and putting you first. And really, you can't parse out and separate each of those loves. They all coexist and work together, and there's a pure desire that our Father has that we demonstrate those sorts of love. But now, maybe in your marriage or in your family or in your church relationships, you're seeing a lack of that first one that we talked about we're going to dig into more today, that affection. What do you do when affection has dried up, when it's not present? Maybe you still got the agape where it's, I'm just going to dig down and decide to put you first. But you're lacking in that affection that makes it fun. So what do you do when you have some of those barriers to affection and maybe that's a situation that you're fa- facing today? Well, let's look at some scriptures especially focusing in First John today, looking at some passages there. And then we'll, we'll pop around a couple other New Testament sections that I think would be some of the barriers to affection that maybe you've experienced in your home, in your life, or in your church. And then looking at how do we overcome that. So let's turn together first to First John, the beginning of First John in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This could be a barrier to affection in your life says this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Maybe the first barrier to affection that we each need to address in our own lives is some of the ways that we can be living in denial that we've just seen here in 1st John chapter 1 the the greek word for uh, sorry Tina the greek word for fellowship there in 1st John is koinonia that word is repeated over and over again in the book of Philippians in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi koinonia because when you see the word fellowship in English, you're kind of like, well, what does that mean? Is that like when we drink coffee out in the lobby? What is that fellowship? And really, I think I think reading those four chapters of Philippians will give you a really full view of, of how Paul uses that word, what that means. It's sometimes sharing, participation, fellowship. Did I say partnership? Okay. So those are that's kind of the feeling of that word koinonia. It's that togetherness, that camaraderie, that it, it, it's not putting me first, it's humbling myself. Not coming to be served, but to serve. And so when we come to our Lord and Savior, when we, when we come to the, our Maker, and we desire fellowship with Him, participation, sharing, there's a need to set aside that old way of living, where we walked in darkness, where we looked out for self-interest. Because we're coming now to the one who is without sin. And we're coming into his holy presence. And it's not up to you or I to clean ourselves up to be able to enter into his presence. He's done that finished work on the cross. But then to come into the light as he is in the light, having received the blood of Jesus to cleanse our sins and to make us right with him, and say, well, you know what? I'd still like to walk in darkness. That's where that self-deception enters in. And if we don't have fellowship with God, it's impossible to have fellowship with one another at a way that we're obeying that command of Christ to love one another, to have affection demonstrated, whether it's in our marriage, because really, the micro-church is our own home. All the stuff that we're commanded to do in the church begins in our own homes, right? In the ways that we as husbands treat our wives and parents to children, children to parents, and maybe, maybe you're at a different life stage. You've still got a family that you're connected to in some way or another, and God is calling each of us to live out our faith and walk in light within that sphere, which is our own home, first. And then to bring that to church, and there's these layers and ripples of influence that go out as the watching world is saying, what does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God? What does it look like to follow King Jesus, to walk in his steps? One way that we can live as in this self-deception that prevents fellowship with God and isolates us from one another that we've seen here in 1 John is to claim we have no sin. No, I'm good. I'm better than that other guy, so I'm doing pretty well. But the the stern warning here is that this is a a form of self-deception, so bad that there's actually no truth within us if we're in that category of claiming that we have no sin. And in contrast to that decision, which is thrown into the same category as walking in darkness, if we want to get to the other place where we're walking in light and having fellowship with God, instead of denying our own sin... It's a posture of confessing our sin. Now, Does that mean that every Sunday morning there needs to be an altar call where you become a Christian once again because you've had some impure thought in the week behind or you had some indiscretion, some area of sin in your life? No, our salvation is not connected to, the, to this. And yet there is a need for us to be constantly confessing to God our sin, our utter dependence upon him verbalizing that to him and saying, God, today I need you. Today, once again, I put myself in your hands. I'm fully dependent upon you for my salvation and my ongoing sanctification. That posture that established me as your son or daughter on the day that I received the free gift through Christ. And then that ongoing work of your Holy Spirit to transform me and change me and conform me to the image of your Son so that when the world looks at you and I, they see a picture of Jesus. Confessed sin is connected with his faithfulness, his justice, his forgiveness, his cleansing. There's no burden there. Those are all delightful things. Wouldn't you like to be clean? and forgiven, and receive justice, and see God's faithfulness in your life? Confession is not a chore, it's a privilege and a joy that puts us back in that place of walking in light and receiving from him. And if Jesus paired those two commandments together in summarizing the Old Testament, love for God and its equal, loving others as yourself, then it's natural to see in in this text That fellowship with God does result in fellowship with one another. And that would be a barrier in our marriage, in our church. If we're living in denial, if we're not confessing sin, if we're choosing to continue to walk in darkness after we've been brought to the light, that's going to be an obstacle. And the do part is that simply confess our sins. Begin with that and say, today I need you. And to walk in the light... To leave the darkness behind. To have fellowship with God. That's going to provide the foundation we need to enter into affectionate, godly, loving relationships with one another in our homes and church. Well, in the next chapter, the end of chapter 2, we we see another barrier or obstacle to affection. And it starts here in verse 28, continues into the beginning of chapter 3. And now little children abide in him, live in him, dwell in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, this is in contrast to what we should be practicing, right? We just saw that we're to practice righteousness. But if instead we practice sinning, and if you practice something, you'll get good at it. So if we practice sinning and we also practice lawlessness, because sin is lawlessness, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." There's a lot packed into that passage. We could spend a three-week series just on on that portion of 1 John. But just to point out a few things. First of all, that love that's described in this passage between you and I as God's children and and our Father God is that father-child sort of love that we've been talking about, that storge love in Greek, the the, the, uh, familial love that we had when we were children in our home. Hopefully you were, you were in a safe place as a child. I know that not every one of us has that in our story. But in an ideal world as God created, there should be safety between a mother and her child, between a father and his children. That kind of love that is a safe place, even if there's different personalities, even if as we mature and grow, we go separate ways, But hopefully you had that sort of family love that exists where there's affection shown. And if not, God wants you to know that love. That's why he uses that metaphor to describe his love for us. Like children, he loves us. He called us his children. And it's not just a name, so we are, it says here in 1 John chapter 3. So then if that's a safe place, that's where we want to live. We want to abide in Him. That's the foundation of our confidence. And we practice righteousness because He's righteous. So in a good, safe, loving relationship, children being raised in a home should be able to look to their own parents as examples of what it looks like to mature and to grow up and to become adults themselves. Really, moms and dads, that's our job and our duty, is to raise our own children to a place where they no longer need us, and then to release them into the adult world where they can start families of their own. And that's a good, healthy form of affection in a family. And in the same way, we're called as children to depend upon our Father, and to look to Him as our example. Righteousness, it's a big church word, but all it really means is living like God does. And so we look to our Father as the example and the picture of how we're to live. If He's righteous, we're going to do the kinds of things that He does. If He's pure, if He's walking in light, we're going to look to Jesus as the example of who we are to be. And then have a natural desire to follow in those steps, to mimic Him, to imitate Him, to make His practices and His values our own, to have our hearts beat with His. When we consider his love, hopefully you've taken time to do that because you know the enemy will come with a lot of lies, tempting you to choose the path of sin, which is the opposite of righteousness. So if righteousness is doing things God's way, sin is missing the mark on that path that God had intended for our good. And the enemy will come and say, Yeah, but sin is more fun. Go down this path, you'll find fulfillment. It'll feel good. How could it be wrong? And he'll tantalize us and tempt us to go down that path. And then come back with the, the one two punch. You know, first the temptation and then the condemnation when we yield to temptation. Oh, God can't love you now. You've turned your back on him, you've been walking in darkness. You haven't been practicing righteousness, you've been practicing sin. God's done with you. And we tend to believe those lies until we get a reminder from God's Word and by His Holy Spirit speaking to us saying, I love you as a child. Believing the lies of the enemy, practicing sin, those are recipes for barriers to affection in our relationships with one another. And if we've condoned practices in our lives, does this mean that we're going to achieve sinless perfection? in this life? Like there'll be no more becoming at some point? You will just exude holiness and righteousness everywhere you go? No, because remember what we just read in 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And so there's always going to be this struggle in this life as we're awaiting the return of our King, where we're going to fight against sin, fight against the temptations. But there's a difference between being in the fight against sin and once in a while yielding, on the one hand. There's a difference between that and practicing sin. Making sin our practice. Where there's not even a struggle anymore. We just yield and we default to rejecting the path of righteousness and choosing the path of sin. If that's where you are today, you need deliverance. And you need healing, and you need some brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you and bring you back to that path of righteousness. Because that's a path of destruction. That's not a path that will lead a child of God to a place of giving and receiving godly affection within a home or within the body of Christ. And Norm reminded us today during the announcement of this time of fasting and prayer that we are in as a congregation. Maybe this is an area that you need to mourn and grieve in your fasting, the sin that you have practiced. And as you abide in him instead and take that extra time to pray and to press in, consider his love. It begins with a a joy and a delight in knowing that you are his son, his daughter. That's the motivation to walk in righteousness. Not out of a sense of, a sense of guilt or duty that I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm tainted by sin. And so I'm going to try to work myself up out of that. No, that, that's the wrong motivation. But it begins with a reminder of His love for you. And then as you consider His love and you abide in Him in that time of prayer, to turn your back on that sin that you've been practicing And go in a new direction. Turning your face toward righteousness and toward purity. The same that we see in the God who loves us, our Father, the example in Him. He calls us His children. And He will appear, this text reminds us. He's also the one who is transforming us. And we can work that out as we practice righteousness and love for our Christian brothers and sisters that's what's evident here in 1st John chapter 3 verse 10 love for brother and sister in Christ is one way that we will know those who are children of God it's a marker so living in denial practicing sin these are some barriers some basic christianity 101 barriers to godly affection within the body of Christ and within our homes Connected to that is another passage here in the next chapter of 1 John. Maybe today the barrier for you giving and receiving godly affection is that you really don't know the love of God. Verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the payment, the sufficient payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Jesus is the fullest demonstration of God's love. Do you know him? Are you a daughter of King Jesus? Are you a son of Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this earth? Because if you know that love, how can you not demonstrate it to others within the body of Christ? Do you want to catch a glimpse of God? John tells us here that no one has ever seen God. But do you want to catch a glimpse of Him? Love one another? If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so today, maybe the barrier to affection in your life is that you don't have an awareness of the love of God. Maybe you're not a Christian. Today's the day. You're not here by accident. And God is reaching out to you and drawing you to himself with that love. There doesn't need to be another day that goes by of you living in isolation apart from his love, trying to make recompense for your own sins by doing good works, today is the day to receive that gift from him. Receive that love so that you can then demonstrate that to others. And we want to have you have have an opportunity to do that today. If you'd like some prayer after church, I'd be happy to meet with you and talk to you about following Jesus and receiving his love today. Well, let's, let's look at a few more passages here quickly that will give us some, some barriers to affection and the keys to overcome those. One barrier to, to affection is there in Philippians chapter 2. And that would be living in a, a way of looking out only for my own interests. Okay, That's going to be a, a sure recipe to not practicing affection within our homes and our church. Here's what it says in Philippians 2, verse 1. forgave us of our sins. He's the one that brought us close to God, that, that showed us what righteousness and purity looks like. The one that called us out of darkness and into light and brings us to that place, that position, that status as children of God, sons and daughters of the King. Not only that, but he gives us the template for how we are to live. And when we look at the humility that he demonstrated, I mean, this is... The eternal God himself who was present at at what we call the beginning. He was there before the beginning, before time was created. He was with God. John chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. And so that's his status, that's who he is, that's his identity. And think about the humility that's required to leave that status and to be born as a human. Fixed in time, space, and matter. This is the eternal, preexistent, immortal, omnipotent creator of all things stepping into human form. And then not just that, but dying for our sins in the, the most humiliating, tortuous way of His, of his time. And if that's the kind of humility that he demonstrates and he's our lord, he's the one we look to for our example. What right do we have to say I'm going to look out for my own interests? When our lord said I'm going to lay it all on the cross and I'm going to live not for self but to do the will of the father and to give myself sacrificially for you. And that's that's the argument that's Paul's argument here in his letter to the church in Philippi to say, step out of that default sinful setting of self-interest and live in a new way in light of what Jesus has done. Humble yourself like he did. Look out to the interests of others like Jesus does. Lay your life down just like Jesus did. And Heidi and I would like to thank you as a body. To this, this week is the, the one-year anniversary of Ariel's heart surgery. And so there she is, you know, creating a ruckus on Sunday morning, you know, wrestling with mom and dad during the worship service, yelling at Pastor Mike whenever he stops to pray, like, crank the tunes back up. But she's got her heart mended uh, from, from Children's Hospital up here in North Aurora. And that was, a, that was a dark time for us as a family to walk through having a little girl that needed to go on a heart and lung machine and be in surgery for many hours and not knowing what report Esther was going to bring out of, of surgery when she came to give us the updates. But the, the outpouring of love that you as, a, as, a church, as our church family demonstrated to us was such a blessing to us and a picture of what we're reading here in Philippians 2. Because, you know, it was a work day. And and that week, you know, you you each had things going on in your own lives as well, right? We weren't the only family facing a challenge or a crisis. And the practical needs that you have day to day of, you know, getting the meal made and getting to work on time and coming up on, you know, tax season and all the the pressures and challenges and stresses of your own self interests that so many of you were willing to set aside and say, God, I'm going to need help because those things aren't going away. But I'm going to bring a meal to the Gilboy family this week. And I'm going to pray for them this week and what they're going through and and for some of you to come and sit in that waiting room in the the pediatric cardiac ICU up on the third floor at Children's Hospital and just be there with us during those hours. That's a picture of looking out not only for your own interests but for the interests of others that we're appreciative to you for that kind of love. To me, it's a, a picture of this Christian godly affection that we've been talking about. I heard stories from, from the Drakes th- this week, uh, the same thing. Kelly put out a, an appeal on a, on a meal wagon to get some meals set up as Jim was going in for back surgery this week and that thing filled up like in a day. So now we're having to like give them you know second breakfast or something just because there, there's no more slots available. And so thank you for those practical ways and sometimes it is something very practical that it's not just a, a thought or a theoretical not looking out for my own in- interests. There's some work required. And there's some not just good intentions but follow through on making that phone call or driving over or helping in some practical way that shows that this life isn't all about me and my stuff, but it's about bearing one another's burdens as a way of building affection. What about in our homes? You know, it gets real practical. What about those tasks? I'm going to say it again. Duties. I get picked on when I say that word. But those things that are... are repeated weekly, daily, those things that need to be done. What if you set your own needs aside and chip in to lend a helping hand in something that's not on your job list? What would that do for your spouse or children toward a parent to say, hey, I'm going to do something above and beyond just to show you that I love you and to give affection to you. That could be a real blessing this week for you to put into practice. Another obstacle to affection is what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 7 in, in a, a humorous, really a humorous but pointed story about a piece of sawdust and a two-by-four. And Jesus cautions against looking at that little speck in the eye of the other person when you've got a log, a beam sticking out of your own eye that needs to be addressed and dealt with. And it's that it's that practice of seeing the little fault in someone else while ignoring the huge fault in my own life. That's a barrier to affection. And I've I've officiated a lot of weddings. I've been to many wedding ceremonies. I've heard lots of different vows: traditional vows, contemporary vows. I've never heard anything in the vows about you know I I I insert name take you insert name to be my husband, wife, in parentheses. I promise to point out your flaws every day. I, pl- I promise to always seek to remove the speck from your eye every chance that I get. I promise I pledge to overlook my flaws so that I can focus more intensely on yours. And I promise to never miss an opportunity to tell you what I really think you need to hear. Until death do us part. They may come sooner rather than later, right? If that were part of the vows. And Jesus is cautioning us there at the beginning of Matthew chapter seven about judging. Okay, right? And now it does say at the end that there there is a removal of the speck, but it comes after we remove the log and the beam from our own eye. So it's not that we're to totally ignore the aspects within our family or in the body of Christ where there's a disconnect between walking in righteousness and in purity and following the pattern of our Lord and the temptation to sin and to be drawn away from that. Like, I do need you as my brothers and sisters in Christ and my wife and my kids to help me become more like Jesus, but if, it's, if that's our motivation every day, if that's our driving force is to stand in judgment over one another, affection is not going to be present. And the world's not going to look at us as examples of Christian love and go, oh, so that's what it is to follow Jesus is you find all the flaws in each other and highlight them and underscore them and emphasize them and broadcast them. There's a way to do this with grace and with humility that says, I'm gonna, I need to deal with my stuff as God is transforming me and changing me and not focus primarily on changing you. And so in our, in our homes and in our church, let's look with grace, not with judgmentalism. Let's give and receive with loving affection as our goal. Well, two more very practical ways that affection may be stifled in your home or in our church. Uh, a, A real simple one in Hebrews chapter 10. There's a commandment to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but to exhort one another and even more so as we see the day approaching. What's the day? That's when he comes back. That's the big day with a capital D. Okay, so we're considering how do we stir one another up to love and good works? Bring out the best in one another. Help each other to look more like Jesus and to follow him. Well, we can't neglect meeting together. Okay, this isn't just a pastor trying to get you to come to church more regularly. You know, this is one way that we meet together, but really, there's not enough time for really showing affection on a Sunday morning. You know, we're getting, we're getting into church, getting in the room. There's a lot of, of you sitting in rows this way, me talking with a microphone. And you're not having ample time to talk to one another. So I think the meeting together has to go beyond Sunday morning. Like practicing hospitality. And setting up meetings because we live in suburbia where you don't just bump into people at the grocery store. It needs to be intentional and planned. And and evidently, the manner of some is to neglect meeting together, as it says here in Hebrews 10. But we can't choose that path. Affection brews and it percolates as we spend time together, right? That's, that's how it happened in our homes. Maybe, maybe your mom or dad didn't care that much about you the day that the doctor handed you over and you became that sleep deprivation torture device in your home. But it was in those times of, of looking eyeball to eyeball and face to face and going through some hard times together and the good times and the giggles and all those developmental stages That there was affection brewing and developing. And that's how it happens in the body of Christ as well. So, in a real practical way, next week there's going to be an opportunity for you to sign up for, for an opportunity. You don't need to do this, this isn't the only way. But something practical that we as a church family can do to help. Not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and instead spend some time together and let this affection begin to develop and build in our church. So, there's going to be a, an opportunity for you to sign up to be a part of a tables for eight group that will just run for a couple months, get together for some meals, groups of, of eight adults. And we may have some, some groups with some uh, younger kids being invited to, you know, like terrorize the basement and eat hot dogs and macaroni and cheese, but will protect most of you from those groups. And just a way for maybe, maybe for you to connect with some people from church that you've been attending church with for a long time, but not really being the church with. You know the difference? Like, you know, everyone says the church is the people, not the building. Good news is we don't have a building. But then we actually have to be the people as well, right? And so part of that is Building that affection by time spent together in fellowship and fellowship. And whenever we eat and drink anything, to remember our Lord, to commune together in that way. So that's one opportunity. Maybe, maybe there's some other practical things that God is calling you to in terms of neglecting meeting together. There's, there's that overdue phone call that you need to make and you need to reach out. Maybe there's some family time that you need to prioritize. And there's some adjustments to really be the church and to allow that to build. In light of the fact that our Lord is coming, we don't know when, maybe today, is there anything that you're a bit afraid about Him asking you about when He gets back? If so, deal with it today. Because we don't know when that day is coming. And it could be in this category of meeting together and obeying His command to Show the world that we are his disciples by our love for one another. The last one I'd like to look at is a barrier to affection that could be caused by a lack of physical contact. This is coming from the guy from Minnesota, okay? Where we don't do a lot of mushy, affectionate expression, not not so much as the Coloradans do. So I'd like to, to look at one verse here in Romans chapter 16. This is uh, affectionate physical contact commanded by the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to the church in Rome. Romans 16, 16. It says this Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Oh, that's weird. Let's look at a different one. How about 1 Corinthians 16, verse 20? This one's probably better. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Can't be right. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Oh no, there it is again. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What about about the church in Thessalonica? They have to be a little more level-headed. So Paul says there in in chapter 5, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And even Peter, as if Paul weren't bad enough, says in chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. It's in there five times in the New Testament. A lack of physical, appropriate, godly affection can be a barrier to affection. most, Most clearly, you could see this in marriage, right? Maybe in your marriage, you've gone through a season where you're not taking time to give that long, lingering hug that can just let the stress ooze out, and there's something transferred in that physical contact in a way that words could not really suffice. Okay? Well, just t- take some time every day. Put it in your, in your phone so you get a reminder. Have a two-minute awkwardly long hug with your spouse every day this week. It will help fix this problem. And and some smooches are good as well in marriage. What about outside of marriage? What about within the church? Because this these five passages we've quickly looked at here in the, in the concluding greetings to the to the letters that Paul writes and Peter writes are, are given to the church. That there should be an affectionate, godly way of contacting one another that builds affection because really, that affectionate touch, it both expresses and produces affection. And my question as I'm reading these is, how much of that is cultural for that time in history and how much of it can we contextualize today? But I'm a little skeptical of the American handshake being able to really capture this. The handshake as a gesture is used in a lot of ways. Like the training we get as guys is, you know, do the, do the handshake in a way where you, you square your shoulders to the person, you lean in a little bit, you walk up and you give a good firm grip to kind of show that you're more aggressive, assertive, powerful. That's not affection. That's like a power play, right? Now, I think there are ways that we can work in godly, appropriate, same-gender affection in the body of Christ that might be somewhere between a kiss, which would be kind of weird, and, and a handshake, which is like, I'm going to out-macho out you, or I'm not sure what the ladies would do with that one. Maybe, they, maybe they'd be our picture guys on how we can do this better. A hug may work. Maybe the handshake with the pat on the back. But in some way, to actually have that physical contact be a way of building and demonstrating affection, right? If it's five times in the New Testament, I think we need to consider this. Well, we're going to conclude today by doing something together as we remember what our Lord has done for us and we look forward to his return, as we receive his love, walk in the light as he is in the light, and then demonstrate that we are his disciples by our love for one another. We're going to be taking communion, and you don't need to be a member of our church to, uh, to receive communion today. You do need to be a follower of Jesus. This is something reserved for Christians. And so if If today you're just hearing the gospel for the first time, then just just wait and observe and you'll see what this is all about. And I'll look forward to praying with you after church to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and receive his free gift of salvation. But today we're going to remember and give thanks. And then I'm going to dismiss you to go to the tables and receive the bread and cup. And we'll return to our seats once everyone has been served and give thanks together. Let's stand together as we pray. God, we thank you for the great love that you've shown us. We thank you for the cleansing and forgiveness and new path that you set us on for your name's sake. God, today we pray that your love within this body would increase. That Lord, if there's a marriage that is struggling, that today you would be the one that brings healing and restoration. If there's been, for those of us that are struggling with uh, looking out for self interests or practicing sin or walking in darkness or focusing more on the flaws of others than on what you're calling us to surrender in our own lives, then, Holy Spirit, we invite you to do your work, to continue that transformation that we each need. And today, above all, we give you thanks. We thank you that you've called us your sons and daughters. We thank you for your great love that was demonstrated on the cross. Thank you that you're here with us today and that you're coming again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So go ahead and make your way to those tables and then we'll come back to our seats and give thanks together.